It ain't that simple, mate. Hello and welcome to It Ain't That Simple, Mate, the Bright Hope World podcast, where we talk about poverty and missions and just about everything related to those subjects. Uh, I am Fraser Scott. I am the uh, Executive Director of Bright Hope World, uh, normally here with Kevin Honore, but Kevin Honore is, uh, well, he's in lockdown up in uh, Auckland at the moment, and I'm uh, sitting in my lounge room uh, down in Christchurch, also in lockdown. Uh, that is the reality in New Zealand at the moment, and uh, of course it's probably the reality uh, for many of you uh, out there as well. We haven't experienced too much of it, um, and so this is a little taster for us. We hope it does end soon, and uh, we are also praying uh, in, in our office and uh, in our team that uh, COVID does start to make a retreat and uh, you'll get uh, safely vaccinated and um, we can uh, wave goodbye to this terrible pandemic that I'm sure we are all uh, very sick of and uh, rather perturbed by as we see the impact that it's making uh, around the world. Uh, and our um, podcast today, we, we will hear a little bit about um, how COVID is affecting things in the Middle East. Uh, we have a wonderful partner um, that uh, I interviewed a few weeks ago uh, on the podcast, and I can't tell you his name, and I can't even tell you that the country that he is operating in. Um, it's a fairly, uh, let's, let's just say it's a, it's a tenuous security um, situation, so um, they've asked that we keep their identity secret, but they are in the Middle East, and um, you, you'll hear a lot about the story, this is a rather long podcast, but they're working with um, young people in a Muslim country um, with very severe disabilities, and you'll hear some of the challenges, some of the cultural issues around that, and um, the, the amazing work that he and his wife and their team uh, do in that space. So I won't give too much uh, of an intro, um, but I uh, have asked uh, our good friend in the Middle East to start with a bit of a sense of how he came to faith and how he came to be doing the work that he's doing. So I will hand over to him right now. It was a long time ago now when I decided to follow Jesus. Uh, unlike some of the other recent contributors, I came from a, a very stable family and my parents believed in uh, God. We even went to church from time to time, but it, it never impacted more than an hour on a Sunday morning. And even then it was only from time to time. Right. But it was while um, my sister came to faith through a friend at school and she met Jesus and started going to a local church and they ran a summer youth camp. And so I was sent to the camp so my parents could have a holiday without us. <laughs> and it was one of the biggest regrets for many years that my family had. Because there I met Jesus and decided that I was going to uh, do something about it. And it became a big part of my life, which didn't make sense to my family. Because remember, my family were used to going to church on a Sunday and they were pretty good people. Uh, they loved us and they cared for us and they provided as best as they could. Um, life wasn't, we weren't flush with cash, but but we spent a lot of time together as a family and suddenly I got religion and that didn't go down too well. Um, but time went on and that was fine and I went to university to study social work and while at uni, friends of mine who I met there uh, from the local church kept telling me about a project in the Middle East working with 
disabled kids running a residential school for them and how brilliant it would be if I went. And quite frankly, I laughed in their face and I spent <laughs> three years laughing at them because why on earth would anybody want to go to the Middle East? It, OK, it was the place where the Bible was written. I get that. And incredible things in history happened there. But that was a long time ago. And I was quite comfortable where I was, thank you very much. Um, I didn't know anything about the region or about the languages or culture or any of the uh, troubles that were going on in this part of the world uh, because I'm in the Middle East now. And so obviously it had an impact because at the end of my time at uni, I was looking at what to do and I didn't really want a proper job, uh, at least not immediately. And I just couldn't shake this idea that that maybe I should go and have a look at this place. And I hated the idea. I absolutely hated it. Now, you, you'd, uh, you'd be working or I'm, I'm just sort of piecing the timeline together because you'd been working with drug addicts. Am I, am I right in thinking that? Is this no, sort of... that, that came later. Right. So, okay. uh, yeah. So I ended up coming out to the Middle East. And even though it was my worst nightmare, um, it was really troubled at that time. Uh, and so it was every reason why my parents had told me they I could do anything in my life I wanted, apart from being a missionary. Right. Um, because I arrived at the place. It was dirty and tatty. Um, I d couldn't tell the residents from the staff. Um, they were all a weird bunch. And there were uh, there were bullets hitting the building every single night because uh, some real troubles had started up in that area. And to be honest, the very worst thing, every single night there would be one mosquito in the room just <laughs> buzzing away, waiting for me to close my eyes and for it to come and get my blood. And that didn't really appeal to me. And yet I just couldn't shake it. This this deep feeling or awareness that I should stay. And so I I committed to coming back after a week's visit just to try it out. I didn't want to, but I came back for a year. And that year turned into three years. And over that time, I just grew to love the culture of the Middle East. Um, but at the end of three years, my time was done and I came back to the UK. I got a regular job, kind of, which, as you said, was working with uh, homeless female drug addicts who were sex workers. Wow. Um, again. Not the job that I imagined. It was uh, not the job that I wanted. It was far away from where I was living and from my family. Um, but by that time, I'd uh, married my wife and we had a couple of uh, daughters. And again, life was comfortable. Let, let me uh, ask you, because I'm just curious, that, yes. that experience in working with the drug addicts, did, did that teach you anything? You know, did you learn anything from that that you sort of carried forward into the ministry work? Did, you know, was it was it a valuable experience? It is unbelievably valuable. The things that I learned in that job, the one that I didn't want, were so critical to what I've been doing ever since. I spent five years uh, working with with homeless women who were addicts and as a consequence of their addiction they had done awful things now let's be clear every single one of them were the victims of the worst abuse in the family home 
from a young age, every single one of them had faced things that no child and no woman should ever face. But as a consequence of their addictions and their completely messed up lives, they had gone on to do the worst things to others, um, not only to strangers, but to their own families and sometimes, sadly, their own children. And it was a Christian organization which was quite um, quite impressive that we were allowed to do this work and to come alongside of these these women with an answer that that actually addressed their deepest issue. It allowed to go deep inside where these women knew that they had done such evil in their lives. They were broken people. Yes, because of what had been done to them, but also because of what they had done. Mm. And many as a social worker, many psychological theories basically tell us that we're good deep down inside. And all of my uh, all of these women that we worked with, they knew that that simply wasn't the case. If they looked deep inside, they would lay awake crying at night for what they had done because they knew that it was evil. Mm. And yet in Jesus, there is an answer. And I'm not some super spiritual person. I say this because we've seen that it works, that it is the answer when life gets the roughest. It's not a get out of jail free card. It's not some easy psychological trick to to calm the emotions, there, e- there really is hope of forgiveness mm. and relationship that is not dependent on what we do or who we are or whether we deserve it. And this only comes because of Jesus. And so and that, that, that yeah. experience, I, I, you know, jumping forward to where you end up, that must really, you know, arm you well. That, you know, one wonders almost as if that was part of God's plan to to take you to that place. Yeah, I, I really do see that it was. That um, my wife and I got married and uh, one of the conditions of us getting married was that both of us separately wanted the other to be willing to agree to uh, consider if God ever called us to work overseas. Right. But my wife was absolutely adamant, the same way I had been years before, my wife was adamant that um, it just would never be the Middle East, because why on earth would anybody want to go to the Middle East? I understood where she was coming from, uh, and it was all going to plan as far as as she was concerned, until God spoke to her. And just in an instant, it happened to be that we learned of a need at that organization that I've been at years before. Uh, and God just changed her heart. And so she was the one who said, let's go back. Let's see what we can do um, to help this organization who had who had found themselves in difficult times. And so we found ourselves as a family, uh, our two daughters and uh, another child was on the way. And we ended up uh, back in the Middle East, back at that organization. And yes, as you said, our biggest heart was to go from from the the organization and the residential school to go out into the families to come alongside of the families of the disabled children who were part of the school and to serve them and to love them and let them see the love that god had for them because they also had done awful things to their kids 
So let, let's set let's yep. set some of the context here. The the residential school that you've you've travelled to to serve in, um, t- you know, tell us about how it works um, and, and what what sort of services is is it offering? What what is it, what is it about? Well, I I can't tell you a great deal about that that residential school because one of the challenges we faced along the way was we arrived and the first day we got there. Uh, Having been invited to go and lead that organization, um, the the local leaders had gone around the staff team and told them not to listen to anything that we said. Oh. So it, it didn't go exactly according to plan. The, we we turned up and uh, people that I knew from years ago took me aside quietly and, and explained this to me and said uh, they were too embarrassed to tell you that they changed their minds and so they figured that if life was hard here for you, then you would maybe choose to go of your own accord. Oh, boy. Um, which which was a little bit of a hard thing because my wife had never actually been to the Middle East before. She hadn't been able to come out on a, a trip to see it because she'd been pregnant uh, at the time. And so the first time she'd come with a three-year commitment to being there, having given up our home and our job and um, said goodbye to our families, was, you're not welcome. Uh, so that was a bit hard, but we'd come there knowing that we wanted to break out of this residential school for kids with mild disabilities to go into the families because eventually the kids would go home and the family situation would become even worse because the families had not had to deal with their kids for so many years. And so from this came the idea, if we're not wanted in this organization, but God has clearly brought us to this part of the world. What if just we as a family were to go into some of these family homes and offer to the help them ourselves? What we won't do is we won't provide um, long term residential care. We won't take the child out of the family home because it's just me and my wife and our own kids. That doesn't exactly work. We can provide short breaks for a few days, but then we'll just help the family in the home and we'll be alongside of them and we'll encourage them and it sounds a bit weak to be honest it doesn't sound the most uh, life-changing thing but we are in a culture of honor and shame mm. it's, it's different to the west the that you live in community together here it, it's something that can be absolutely beautiful uh, that you're welcomed into so many situations and so many families but it's based on your prestige and who you are. Now, can you just unpack that a little bit? Because, you know, the idea of an honour-shame culture won't necessarily be familiar to to people, but that is, you know, that's very much the 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 norm within the Middle East. Um, it's certainly the context in which the Bible is written. And, you know, it's increasingly becoming, um, you know, common in the West even, particularly through the likes of social media. So uh, unpack that a little bit. What, you know, what is an honest shame culture? What What is it like to be uh, to be in it? What, what do you see? Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful place to be. I love being in the Middle East, but it does come with some drawbacks, which is that it's the outward things that count. It doesn't matter whether you're a good person. It matters whether people see you being good. It matters whether... Um, you're rich and influential. It matters uh, how people talk about you. 
Um, it doesn't matter about who you really are or what you've really done, uh, but it's the the impressions and and you're always looking to be honoured. In the Bible, there was the uh, the story that Jesus gave of um, the wedding feast and people who've moved themselves to the top of the table and how shameful it would be if they were then asked to go down to the bottom and vice versa, that how much better to put yourself at the lowest place and then be invited up somewhere high. That doesn't work in this culture. That isn't, or at least I should say that isn't normal. Normally, we're trying to get ahead. We're trying to be seen to be more important, more influential, have greater honor. And so having a disability, particularly an intellectual disability, something to do with the mind, destroys any honor that you have. Right. It wipes you out. You've dishonored your family. You've brought shame into this environment. And and though you're seeking to be honored, shame is what you're trying to avoid at all costs. And shame, being shamed by other people, people thinking less of you. And so you're always trying to give this good outward appearance. But when you suddenly have a child with a disability, that's pretty hard to hide. You can hide all of your addictions. You can hide all of your bad behavior and how you mistreat your family members because it's done behind closed doors. But you can't hide easily a profoundly disabled child. Right. So what 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 is it like for, you know, these disabled kids in this environment? What What is the experience, you know, like for them in that culture? In the places where we get to work, we tend to be outside of the cities uh, and prefer to work in the rural and village areas. But across the countries that we've been based in, there is very little or even no help for the most profoundly disabled, uh, most intellectually disabled. And it means that families have to deal with this burden on their own. So. Imagine that you're in a really close knit family. And suddenly you do something that shocks and offends everybody. And that act is the the wife has produced a disabled child. She is shamed and dishonored her husband. And so she gets written off by the family. She gets excluded. <sighs> even if the whole family are living in houses next to each other or even the same apartment block, she suddenly gets left out of family events. And she suddenly gets the the evil looks from other people and the the rude things they're said. And she gets the worst jobs to do in the in the family. She goes from a, a place of honor in the family to to blow a servant. Mm. That it's it's she's shameful. She's dirty. And this transfers onto the disabled kids. So all of the pressure that mum faces, all of the exclusion that she has very often that comes into the treatment of the kids with disabilities and if they survive into adulthood uh, throughout their lives. And so we see for the most profoundly disabled, those who have maybe the mental age of a one or two year old, but the physical body of a, a 10, 20, 40 year old person, that, yeah, the worst types of abuse are very common neglect mm. is extreme um, and this is how we got into this work is that one day when we had this nice idea of working with kids with mild disabilities and 
and doing nice, playing nice games to them in our <laughs> family home. We got invited by a, a Muslim friend of ours because there's uh, Islamic communities. He knew us uh, for a few years and he said, there's a family way down south and nobody knows what to do with them. Could you come have a look? And I don't I didn't want to say yes because it was a long way and there was nothing we could do for this family because he was talking of extreme disability and we have no idea of what we're doing. Uh, but he's a friend and so you honor your friend and you give time to your friends. And also it came through uh, an Islamic organization uh, had been part of this invitation and we, we didn't want to uh, dishonor them. So we went down just to to show that we were doing the right thing and we were we were at least considering it. Mm -hmm. And we went into this village and we were there with the uh, with a, a social worker from the government and with our friend who was representing a, an Islamic charity. And we walk into this family home and as soon as we walk into the home in the the corridor that you enter, there was a metal framed bed and it was it was quite unpleasant. It hadn't been cleaned for many years. Mm. And on it were um, uh, a boy and a girl or teenagers, a male and a female, who were tied to that bed and they were wild and they were <sighs> dirty and they were just. Yeah, just unimaginable. We, we didn't know what we were looking at. And us being us, we'd gone there, my wife and I and our children. Um, and suddenly we're bringing our kids into this environment. No idea what to do. No experience of such profound disabilities before. And the the government official is saying how terrible it is and how shameful it is. And then off she goes. <laughs> and this this mother is there. And as we get talking, it turns out she doesn't even know there are other disabled kids like us anywhere in the world. Oh, my word. There's 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 nothing on the telly. There's, you don't talk about this in the community. Even the social worker hadn't talked with the mum about anything to do with disability, apart from how shameful the mother was for having these disabled kids. And she happened to have another two less profoundly disabled kids as well. And they just left there. And mum is broken and... Not only does everyone tell mum that she is terrible, she thinks it's something to do with what she's done. She's the cause of this. And this so isn't this, this, this isn't an isolated situation either, is it? No, this isn't an isolated situation. Mm. But this was the first one we came across where our hearts were broken as to what was going on here. And we just before God, we said, we've got to try and do something. We've no idea what. And so we offered to take the kids for a few days into our home. And we quickly learned that was a bad idea um, <laughs> that we needed to get a plan together because um, these kids who are used to be tied up, they're tied for a reason. I hate it. We never endorse it. We couldn't. But the families do it because they don't know how else to cope. And mm. um, everything that these kids could get their hands on went in their mouths. <sighs> They could down, they could drink a two litre bottle of Coke or Pepsi in one swig. And then, sorry to put it, it's not the nicest thing to put on the podcast, but uh, what went down then came back up. Oh, boy. 
And this is what the families were dealing with every single day on their own. In fact, it wasn't the family. It was mum mm. on her own. And so, of course, she did the be- she did the only thing she knew how. And she tied them up and took her frustration out on them. And yeah, this and is I, a situation we found again and again. I guess it's pretty easy, you know, to to hear that and from a distance to, <laughs> you know, to, to judge. But, um, you know, one can't um, easily imagine what it's like to be any of the people in the story and, um, you know, how difficult that situation would be for the mother as well. Now, I've got to be honest, it didn't come naturally for me to love this family. Mm. These kids I had great pity for, but for the family, I looked at what they did and thought how terrible these people must be. But slowly, this is where that history of working in amongst addicts and um, sex workers and people with broken lives, beginning to see a couple of things. One was... I took these kids and I put them into my own home with my own family and found that it was impossible. I couldn't do it on my own as a trained social worker with a strong family, with a big space. We actually had some people coming to help us and still we couldn't manage it on day one. Wow. It took us years to figure out how to do this well. Let's um, l- let's just pause there for a second because I, I, I want to take a break and then, and then you know, and I, I hate to... to stop the momentum there but um yeah. we'll, we'll just take a quick breather um but then i really want to come back and and hear kind of what next you know how when you start to see this and and just in the way you're telling the story that, that it's really starting to impact you I'm, I'm just very excited to hear you know what comes next in your journey and, and how um how you respond to that uh, but we'll just take a quick break and we will be right back it Ain't That Simple Mate is brought to you by Lamai Coffee. Lamai Coffee is the finest quality organic Arabica coffee from the northern hills of Thailand. We at Bright Hope World import the green beans into New Zealand and we roast them to perfection, then sell them to discerning coffee drinkers. We're all volunteers on the team, so all the profits go back into great community projects in Thailand. And that is why we call it the world's best tasting act of kindness. You can order Lamai coffee or find out more at lamai.co.nz. It ain't that simple, mate. Welcome back. You are with um, Fraser Scott on uh, It Ain't That Simple, Mate, the Bright Hope World podcast. We were talking to a uh, friend and partner uh, working in the Middle East um, with uh, Muslim communities particularly, and um, we, we were just hearing before the break about some of the challenges of um, dealing with uh, young people with disabilities in uh, an honour-shame culture and um and and just the, the the intensity of the situation um i was very sorry to to take a break there but please to carry on you know tell us about you know when you're starting to see this and, and understanding what it's like for uh, the mothers and and for the kids and the the you know the extreme isolation and challenges of the situation what do you do with that well i was just saying how uh, with these families or particularly this one family that we started with how we as a family had no idea how you could manage 
multiple profoundly disabled kids, but also with the the disgust that we felt looking into that family at what they had done to their kids and how they had treated them. It dawned on us. This is the love of God that he had for us. We did everything against God. And when we were at our worst, God sent Jesus. Mm. And it's that that hope that we have that God reaches out to us, knowing the very worst about us. Not only what we've done in the past, but what we're going to continue to do. That's what God did. He reached out and he sent Jesus to deal with it, to provide an answer. And so in these families, in all of the brokenness, there are no good answers. There's no help from the government. There's no funding. There's nobody to tell them how to care for their disabled kids. There's no treatment options. But there's hope that God cares. Mm. And as weak as that might sound to some people, it's transformational in people's lives when they realize that there is somebody alongside of them. And that started as us as a family. And over time, it grew. We had some more volunteers. And as generous people like Bright Hope World came alongside of us, we were able to employ uh, some local staff to help us. And letting them see in a tangible way that God cares through what we did, through us being alongside of them, through us loving them. And so it, it was it was strange because we hadn't intended to do this and we didn't have a, any training in it. And everybody we spoke to had no idea how you respond to a situation where there is no help. Mm. When you've got a kid, one of our other guys, it literally lives in a cage. But when the police hear, what do you do about it? And so we we started to put together a program where we could help the families to learn to love their kids. And it's not some some well-resourced program. It's us going in with our friends, with our co-workers, with our volunteers and loving the families and at the same time loving the kids. Now, this is where the shame honor culture matters, because we get to honor the family. And bring the child into it, and that isn't normal. Normally, the two groups are kept separate. Either you love the child and despise the family, and so they never learn to do something different or you love the family, but never find a way to bring the child in. What we found was through having short three, four day breaks at our place, these young people would come and we would put a whole team together to manage it because we couldn't do it on our own. And um, we would learn simple things that the children learn and uh, loved to do. OK, things like just brushing, brushing or it wouldn't be me in a Middle Eastern culture. It would be my wife or one of the female staff or volunteers would brush the girls hairs. And then we go to the family home on our next visit and we try and visit every week and go in and spend time with the family. And we'd we'd have a drink of tea or coffee with the family and we'd insist that the young person come in with us. And then in the home, we will just brush the girl's hair, which doesn't sound like much. But as we do this, the family get to see that we honor them as parents and we care for them as parents and their child. It's not an either or. We honor them. We honor the whole family together. But so also what, we what, let them... what did the yeah. families make of you? 
uh, you know, the, I'm guessing they've not seen anything quite like this before. How did they react to what you were trying to do, you know, with them and, and with their kids? How was it received? Uh, we're, we're utterly crazy. <laughs> Why would anybody come from another country to come and into these rural situations amongst families like this? Um, the families know that we're crazy. Um, it's just whether we're crazy good or crazy bad, they can't work out. Um, and it it takes a little bit of convincing to let us in the front door to begin with. Because, of course, as Westerners, they 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 guess that we are followers of Jesus. They don't realize that most Westerners aren't, but we really are. So it's OK because they start out knowing that we're Christians. Right. And so as long as we can get in the front door, we're the only people offering to help them. We're the only people honoring them by visiting them and drinking tea or coffee with them because they've been written off by their family and their community. And so they allow us tentatively in with a great deal of reservation. But within just a few visits, they start to see something's different. Um, it only works when us and our team are allowed to live life alongside of these families where they really get to see what makes us tick, to see that we we don't like what they do. We don't agree with it, but we judge them in a different way. We let them know that we care for them, even in the midst of what they're doing. And we show them that there's hope for a better tomorrow mm. through letting them see the care we have for their kids and helping them to catch it from us just by doing it together. And so slowly over time, it went from my wife and I and our kids, who at that time were just a couple of years old, um, so not a great deal of help, um, to slowly getting momentum when we were able to rent a derelict building and slowly convert it into a center uh, where we could provide these short breaks and reach out from this place into the villages um, up to an hour and a half drive away and choosing deliberately to work with the most broken of families where there is no hope and no good answer and slowly starting to see families change and soften and their hearts break for their kids. It's never going to be perfect. Life is too hard for that. But we aim that families will be their kids less, dress them better, feed them more. And we saw these things taking place wow. and doing it all openly in these Islamic communities in the name of Jesus. And we get to do that because nobody else will serve the least. Nobody else will touch guys like this. Nobody will touch their families, let alone the kids with profound disabilities. And so that's why we get allowed into these communities. But it's our heart of caring for for all of them that lets us stay. And what we found is that amongst these families, in all of our time, only two have stopped working with us uh, for anything other than um, either their child has died, sadly, or they've moved away. But the only two families who've ever stopped working with us, it's not for religious reasons. It's not because we're Christians and they can't cope with our with our hope that we have in Jesus. It's been because they cannot. They cannot really let us in. 
the shame right. is too great because because we live life alongside of the family we get to see their darkest secrets and what we find is most families actually open up in an incredible way that we doesn't make sense here that they tell us their most shameful secrets and they allow us deep deep into the families it's only those who who realize eventually that all of the lies that they've told us because it's so shameful that we obviously see through it not that we judge them for it we want to help them but they just can't cope because the shame is too great for them and uh. and so we find that most families are looking for i don't know how to put it that that this shame is overwhelming and they need an answer to it and they've never found it before um sadly uh, a couple of years ago uh, the situation changed in the country where we were and we lost the visas for our entire international team um and so we've we're just in the process of relocating to a new country just next door and it's it's been painful because yeah, all I guess of these, you've got all yeah. those relationships that you've you've had to let go of for the most part yeah yes well the last uh, 18 months have been a challenging situation for everybody uh, we've been some of the most uh, fortunate because we were already in this transition period the the loss of visa and the closing of our project happened before that but we're just waiting for the borders to reopen so that we can get back in and uh, just pop over for a couple of weeks multiple times a year to go and revisit these families and keep those relationships going because everything we did was based upon the idea of what if we can't actually continue yeah that's why we didn't do full-time residential care not only is it phenomenally expensive what happens on the day when you have to shut the doors these kids have to go back to their families who have never learned how to care well for their kids. So and it wasn't so, it wasn't entirely surprising to you that you were moved on. We were surprised that it that our our entire work got shut down. We we knew that we might lose our visas for a time, but such a catastrophic loss of visas, which happened to the entire international community, it wasn't just us. Uh, that was unexpected but the the project had been designed from day one what happens if we run out of money and have to go what happens if if something like visas get lost for important people or significant people in the organization and we can't replace them we'd always been thinking about this how will the families be able to keep going and so all of the things that we did with the families are things that went deep into the heart and it was about heart before actions because mm. their actions come out of what's in their heart if they hate their kids every single day is going to be hard if they love them it's still going to be hard but not quite as much and so they have more energy to care well for their kids to give them better food to actually invest their money in them to buy them the proper clothes all of these things have lasted in many of the families that we got to live life alongside of and got to love deeply and now though we get to not only do it in our in the last country we're in but now we get to set it up again in an even better way in a stronger way 
And um, how, will you do things differently? I mean, do, is your vision the same in the, uh, in, you know, in the in this new country, or do you have different plans in mind? What happens from here? The country we're in is a little bit more stable, but it is um, still exactly the same needs. And what we did, and not because we're clever, but because God gave us a great idea, it works well. It works really well. But what we realized is um, that, that we've learned to love our disabled friends and their families in such a way that we can do it always in our sleep, that it is no hardship being here being in these environments amongst these families. And that's something that God has done. But the reality is we're, we're in an Islamic community and we talk about faith all of the time, but at the same time, we still struggle with it. Mm. Finding, the, finding the, the right way to talk with families about Jesus because we don't want them to just know that God cares, but we want them to have a relationship with him. They, we want them to experience the new life that comes through knowing Jesus. And we found that we are so good at the disability that we need to um, always put that to one side because we're going to do it anyway. We can do that and do it all day long and we're going to do that. But we've really got to even increase our effort on letting them know about the hope that comes through Jesus. They know that's what we believe. They have great respect for it. They welcome prayer in the name of Jesus because they see it working. We want people to meet him. Mm. And so in this new season, all of our conversations are, we know we'll do the disability well. We'll do it incredibly well. And I say that not to boast, but it's just the way that it is because no one else is doing it. There's nothing to compare it to. Um, but letting people meet Jesus, that's where we've got to find a new way. And so as we come into this country, we want the change to happen, not just for a lifetime, but for eternity. And so we're able to combine these two things in such a beautiful way. You can't take one away from the other. We don't get to go into villages unless we serve people. They don't get to see what the love of Jesus looks like unless we care for the very most difficult families and the most difficult situations. But we also can't give them the greatest um, or we can't meet their greatest need unless we tell them about Jesus well. Mm. We've spent 10 years figuring out how do we care well for people with disabilities and now we've we've always been telling people about Jesus but our question is how do we tell people well so that they can respond more effectively more fully to the invitation that there is to become part of God's family so that they can take the honor that is naturally Jesus's and belongs to Jesus of being a child of the living God and for them to to see that in their own lives that it's no longer about who they are and what they've done, but about the the invitation and the gift of God. And that's for us, those two things come together in such a beautiful way. And we want to to make sure that we we do this in the best possible uh, with the best possible uh, combination. I don't, I don't know the words to, to describe it, that we just love these people. 
and we know that their lives are broken and there is an answer and we want them to be able to accept it we can't force it on them what with their uh, friends uh, with their guests i'm curious we, you know in a in an islamic or you know majority islamic culture that is rooted in that honor shame dynamic uh, you know, what do you find um, in, in those that that start to warm to or respond to the gospel? What do you find um, that it is about the gospel, all the elements of it, that that people in that culture respond to? What what are the what are the anchor points for people in that? I think some of it, uh, every. It goes without saying that. No, it doesn't go without saying because I'm saying it. Um, <laughs> every situation is different, but there are some common themes that we see. Some people um, are looking for something new, something different. They're not happy in their culture uh, because it's it's not just about religion. It is uh, Middle Eastern culture. Mm. Um, but some people are looking for an answer that they don't have. They want peace with God. They want peace in their in their hearts that they don't find anywhere else because they know that what they're doing isn't good enough. Some people are coming and they're utterly broken. We're seeing that it's it's refugees more than anyone else who are coming to faith or people who are coming from war-torn countries or who are... Um, even economic migrants, but people who are in transition, where people's needs are greatest, when they've realized that uh, there isn't any good answer that they have, and so they're willing to consider something new. Mm. And it's not an empty promise. They've had other people tell them answers, and they've tried them out, and they've found them to be hollow. But knowing Jesus is life changing. It's radically different. And and they see that in the lives of other people, that though God is giving people dreams and visions in this part of the world, people are coming to faith when they meet followers of Jesus and they see that there is something different in their lives. And there is a hope that people have. There is a joy that people have and um, that it takes people being different it takes followers of jesus living different lives and standing out from the crowd and it can be risky it can be seriously risky yeah. in this part of the world but there is something different in passionate followers of jesus and that is attractive to people it's meeting their deepest needs so and we're, some we're, people are choosing to do that having counted the cost knowing that their families will not only reject them, but come after them yeah. uh, for making that decision. And yet still they're deciding that it's worth it. Yeah, we're inclined to, I guess, see the Middle East as, uh, you know, culturally monolithic, if you like. That, you know, th- th- that culture is, is all very similar. But do, do you notice moving from one Middle Eastern country to another, um, do you notice you know, market differences in, uh, you know, in culture that you're having to adjust to? There's a little bit of difference that you'll find as you move from country to country. But to be honest, the biggest difference is as you move within a country uh, from the city to the village to the rural life. Uh, and in these communities, we have 
people who are in settled accommodation and we have Bedouin communities. And as you go between these different segments, they are radically different. You can go to the business section of a major city and you could be in, um, apart from the the language on the street signs, you could be in any Western city. Mm. Um, it's busy, it's bustling. There's Starbucks, McDonald's, there's high class restaurants. Uh, there are incredibly expensive cars on the streets. Or you can go to rural village life where you're sitting on the floor, uh, maybe even a dirt floor, um, and uh, people are getting by I don't even know how they survive on uh, the salaries that they have. Then you go to the Bedouin community and there is no salary. People don't get paid for working. Your All of your investment is in your animals. You don't have a building. You have um, a tent made of material um, and everyone lives in a communal setting. It, it's such varied um, experiences as you move from one space to another. People who live in the city, very few of them have ever visited a Bedouin tent. Communities are very fixed here. And so we're unusual because we move between the different segments of society. Mm. Most are normally very fixed. And so it's quite interesting when you go with a, uh, a local follower of Jesus out of the city, because most followers of Jesus live in the, in the major cities, and you go out into the rural environments and they've just never been there. They've never experienced what life is like away from the bustling busyness of the city. And it's it's quite strange to see um, people from the same uh, country, but different experiences come together and they've never met each other before. Look, um, we're, we're just about out of time um, and I would love to just carry on talking here, but I, I will um, I will restrain myself and end bring it to a close but I, I just did want to ask how you know we're in late July uh, 2021 as we, we record this how is your area of the world doing from a COVID perspective how is, is it getting better or worse or stabilized what are you seeing around you I think for the first year almost of COVID the country that we're in now uh, did exceedingly well, but it uh, then COVID started to take a real hold, and uh, it's got it's got pretty high numbers here. Um, vaccinations, people are reluctant for exactly the same reason as other parts of the world of misinformation and um, concerns and skepticisms and about the real motives for people being vaccinated, and so vaccination rates are low. Um, People are getting sick. People are dying uh, from this. And it's it's not getting any better. It, it's not getting significantly worse, but it, it's staying at relatively high numbers. And it is crippling to families. People were mm. were struggling to get by. It's, it's not the same as in India and in other places where people are, are starving to death. But people are going hungry. People are losing their livelihoods. People are facing destitution because of the economic impacts of this, um, which are coming because um, it is spreading rapidly. And sadly, we're seeing that people are, are so exhausted of it that, um, that 
the the authorities are struggling to keep control over it. So it, it's, it's a bit painful to see, despite the great efforts that are being made here to to do something about it. Yeah. Um, the the economic costs will have a very real cost on people's lives alongside of those who are dying from COVID. Uh, so it's painful. Yeah. Um, it's it's sad to see. Um, but yeah, the, it's it's just yet one more thing that the community here is having to face. Life is tough. Um, nobody could have done with having COVID, but but life is tough already, and this has just made life even more complicated for people who didn't need oh, it. I think that's it, isn't it? That you know, we, we did a COVID special. Um, if one could call it a COVID special on a previous podcast, and, and see, you know, that's what a lot of our partners have said to us is, you know, this is just one more thing that we, you know, we couldn't really cope with. It, it's just, it's tipped a lot of communities over the edge, which is, um, you know, is is heartbreaking. But we, um, you know, we certainly pray that things will start to get better. We've been praying that for a while, but we did not give up. And, um, you know, we, we particularly think of you and your family there. And, and um, yeah, we're just excited to see um, what you do next and, and are very glad that you've been able to get there and and settle and that you're safe. Yeah, I appreciate that. And just in closing, I want to say that we've worked blimmin' hard to to get this disability ministry running and running well. But it's only happened because God has intervened. The opportunities we have are because God has done something quite unique and special. And that's happening because folk like you are getting people out there and praying. And yes, helping with the financial cost because it does cost money, but it only happens when people are praying. And so we're so grateful uh, for all of the folk who are listening, who are going to get out and pray for the different projects and different partners that are part of Bright Hope World. Uh, because it's, it's as God steps in that something really quite special happens. So thank you for that. Oh, well well said. And yeah, we, we do. Let, let this serves a reminder of the importance of prayer. Boy, it um, it certainly makes a difference. Um, yeah, look, thank you so much for, for sharing your story. Uh, I know it's, it's rather early in the morning uh, there. Um, yeah, I, we just appreciate it. We appreciate you taking the time to um, give us a sense of what you're doing and, and what God's doing um, in the place where you're working. It's wonderful. Thanks, Fraser. I appreciate thank, it. Thank you, my friend. We will talk again soon. Well, an amazing story uh, from the Middle East there and, and from one of our very good friends and partners. Um, I've been to visit their ministry, actually, uh, not in their current location, but in their previous location. Uh, and they do make an extraordinary difference in the families and um, with the young people that they're working with. And, and it is those little human touches, uh, as, as he described, like brushing a young woman's hair, um, they're just not uh, often experiencing that kind of interaction, that kind of comfort. Um, and uh, once these huge differences being made in a short amount of time with these young people. So um, please do hold those good folks in your prayers, even though um, we haven't told you their names. Their names are known to God um, and they would appreciate your prayers uh, nonetheless. Uh, if you have any feedback or thoughts about um, today's uh, podcast, please do send them to us via email, podcast at brighthopeworld.com, or you can um, make a comment uh, on our Facebook feed. That's facebook.com forward slash brighthopeworld. Uh, we love getting that um, feedback. We love passing it on to our partners where you have any um, thoughts or encouragement for them.
Uh, we will be back in two weeks again with a, another podcast in our latest uh, series and season. Uh, we're calling this A Conversation With and going to different parts of the world and talking to different partners, getting a sense of who they are and what they're doing and particularly how they're coping with the world as it is at the moment. Um, yeah, it's, it's been wonderful to talk to some of these people and we look forward to sharing more of their stories. But for now, that is the uh, conclusion of our podcast. Um, It's been wonderful having you listen. We hope it's been enjoyable for you. Uh, Until next time, uh, thanks for listening to It Ain't That Simple Mate, the Bright Hope World podcast.